And so I learned while researching this book that George H.W. Bush was a man of great contradictions. Inconsistencies. He was a fiscal moderate who won the presidency with a dubious, dishonest pledge to never raise taxes. A longtime advocate for family planning who nominated an allegedly anti-abortion... A moderately... A rabidly anti-abortion judge to the Supreme Court. A proponent of bilateralism who staged a coup in Panama. And, in short, a far more complicated figure than his patrician... Football reputation would suggest. So, does this summary of my next book, George H.W. Bush, A Kinder, Gentler Reagan, satisfy your demands, Ms. Mann? Terrible. You realize I won't release you from your captivity until you transform from a mouthpiece for conventional wisdom into a real historian. And for all we know, my sometime paramour, Paige Turner, is preparing to set up loudspeakers outside this warehouse and bombard you with quotes from the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearing, distracting you so that I may escape. That has got to be the stupidest idea I have ever... Uh, my bottom line was that I felt that there was a right to privacy in the Constitution. Like hell you do, you long-dong silver fanboy! Took you long enough. You're welcome. I was held captive for five months. And so is Kuwait before Bush invaded Iraq. I was building a coalition. To rescue you earlier would not have been prudent. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for People Who Can't Afford Hamilton. Today, President 41, George H.W. Bush. We continue to thank you for your continued interest and ears for DB Comedy Presents The Electables. We are coming up to the end of all of the presidents that America has had up until this moment. But we're not quite there yet, and any help that you can give us, or any thanks you would like to give us, would be appreciated. If you haven't, please subscribe to DB Comedy Presents The Electables on whatever marketplace you are listening to this podcast. Also, don't forget to like and recommend some more folks can listen. If you like what you hear, please leave us a tip or a donation, if you will. Go to fracturedatlas.org and look up DB Comedy. Fractured Atlas is our fiscal sponsor. Any tip or donation you leave us is tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. Please keep supporting us because we are plotting life beyond the presidents and we'd like you to keep listening. Thank you. We're back. And we're beautiful. Let's do a quick round of intros uh, before we jump into 
the last first family the set that we'll be dealing with and it's literally the first of two we'll have to discuss that at some point as well sort of families and presidents don't seem to go very well but in any event joe here paul here sandy here sylvia i'm patrick um i'm chelsea i'm james cool so in the category of presidents we have to do because they're on the list we come up upon george hw bush and um i don't know maybe he he'll turn out to be sort of a transitional weird transitional type once we're done with the discussion i don't know he was the last greatest generation president he certainly he certainly had the world war ii record to be sure yeah uh, our last our last veteran president now that you think about it our last world war ii veteran president our last president who served in the armed forces period is he not if you don't want to count you don't want to count w's Texas. Well, I think he, he would have had to show up for that to, for it to count. Well, there you go. He's also the first president who I was alive for his elect his inauguration. So I wasn't. Rub it in, Chelsea. <laughs> anyway, kids. I'll just I'm go watch my Nickelodeon now. Thank you all. <laughs> it was my MTV. That's what I want to know. And it, and we are in the middle of the MTV era. That's for sure. I would also like us to draw attention that George H.W. Bush has some of the best nicknames just in my brief research. Poppy, great one, classic. Um, Skin, because of how tall and lanky he was. That was his nickname during... uh, That's a terrible nickname for that. (laughs) It's just skin, skin and bones, skin. And religious conservatives in the 1980 election called him Rubbers because of his association with Planned Parenthood. Hey, Chelsea, you said? This man okay, was what? too... This man was not cool enough for any of these nicknames. Even Poppy. <laughs> Even Poppy's too much for So Skin, Rubber, and Poppy. Rubber. I'm noticing a trend. And as you can tell, I think we're groping for a way to get the whole thing started to kind of categorize him a little bit. Why don't you just... Give us a, the uh, background, like the nuts and bolts. Where was he born? Where was he raised? Some oh. of the factoids, the factoids. historical factoids. Well, one of my favorite factoids is that the Bushes were, they were one of the families that helped create Planned Parenthood, mm-hmm. which is why um, con- religious conservatives were very upset with George H.W. Bush when he entered the presidential race in 1980, and even more angry when Ronald Reagan chose him as the, his vice president. Prescott Bush lost a Connecticut race for a Senate in 1950, supposedly, because he was pro-abortion in a very Catholic yeah. state. Yep. So, yes, it was an issue even back in 1950. I didn't think the word abortion was uttered in 1950. Oh, gosh, no. Um Here's it, a great it story. The, of, uh, it made the debates really difficult. Um, here, so here's a great story about my grandmother who might not want this story on the radio. So sorry, grandma. I don't know that she knows what podcasts are. She um, will always, she once told my mom that when she came home from the hospital with like a, a Catholic hospital, because this is the 1960s in Michigan. And they gave her like a little pamphlet about like, 
caring for your baby and like pregnancy and right all of this stuff and there is a there was a section on birth control and abortion and it was ripped out because the catholic hospital was like yeah we're not going to tell you anything about that if you want to find that out go find that out somewhere else just ripped out and she opened it up and she was like well shit (laughs) you know i think that says something nice about catholic thrift though that they wouldn't bother (laughs) printing new pamphlets they would just Get the get the ones that had abortion and be and take that part out. And by the way, one thing that did strike me, and I do think this might be something that's worth talking about, because Democrats and Catholics, and of course that would always bring up the Kennedys as this sort of royal family with family wealth as a huge factor in why and how they became politically active. But I, I think like the mob a... had a bigger factor in that, Jim. But it seems to say, me could... like the Bushes, though, like That's... even bigger money. Exactly. Holy moly. Exactly. Well, Senior exactly. himself is a scion. We mentioned Prescott Bush, but it goes even further. And George H.W. Bush is named after his grandfather, George Her- Herbert Walker. George Herbert Walker, yeah. A very successful entrepreneur and inventor who was known to the family as Pop. Pop. That's why little George, the second born child, was known as. Poppy. Uh-huh. His older brother Prescott got the junior, so George got the maternal George got the maternal mark. Also, a name like Prescott, oh. you have to wait until after you're rich to name a kid that, or Yeah. Is it more of an aspirational thing? Yeah, I couldn't name my child Prescott. People would be like, Are you from middle class America? And I would be like, No. Yeah, Prescott is a brand as in like 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 a yes. like a cattle brand almost. But I did want to talk a little bit about the wealth. So, you know, know, Paul mentioned that there were some inventors. And, of course, the other thing we would associate is oil. So how rich were they and how old is that money? Oil didn't show up until under George himself. Uh, The the family found money through other things. Yeah, Prescott railroad men before that. Yeah, Prescott... um, after working in rubber, apparently, or maybe that maybe that was George Herbert Walker. I think it was Prescott. Maybe it was Poppy. Anyway, <laughs> he fa- no Pop, not Poppy. He found himself. He went to work for a big Wall Street investment firm under the under Avril Harriman, who was Pam Harriman's father, and she was like a living romance novel of the 20th century. But George, after coming back from the war wanted to strike out on his own, so he went to Texas and invested in an oil company so he could be his own man with a lot of money from his uncle. Be your own man, but with someone else's money. <laughs> it, it worked for Romney. That's the way to do it. <laughs> and to uh, his credit, I've been he told. Find, I mean, he did find he did find oil, apparently. Yeah. I mean. Um, but the, so the, his maternal side they were southerners they had um plantations in north in south carolina um and so they were you know wealthy upper class southerners and, and they, his, had the, they had the main compound yes um like paul said his grandfather was a inventor and um his father was an investment banker and so it was, I think, a mix of different uh, money streams all coming together in one now super wealthy family. And he didn't marry too badly in that regard either. I think Barbara is an heiress. Barbara was an heiress. Her family, yeah. I 
thinks founded McCall's Publishers. Yeah, I was going to say they had uh, a fashion tie. Mm-hmm. Barbara. I'm, I'm sorry, I have to insert this because okay. there's there's another connection. Um, That's what rubbers would say. Yes. Barbara's dad, Pauline and Marvin Pierce. Ring a bell, y'all? No. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Franklin Pierce. Barbara Pierce was... Barbara Bush was descended from a Democrat? Yeah. Q. Katy Perry's Dark Horse. <laughs> Dark Horse has returned. Franklin <laughs> Pierce. Well, okay, so, okay, I guess this is my whole thing on Bush is, like, <sighs> the guy just seems like he's just kind of there. Like... <laughs> Like, you know, he, he has this, like, he starts off and he's rich, okay, and then he goes off to West Texas and he gets an oil company and he gets more rich, which, okay, good on him, but, like, anybody who is investing in oil in West Texas at this time, good chance that they're going to get rich. He's in the Army, or Army? Navy? Navy. Navy, 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 Navy oh, that's right, Navy. And does fine, you know, good for him. Um, does fine? He gets shot down by the enemy and is like the only one saved in his mission. That's but like, pretty good. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> did he save himself though, or did he just get lucky? Um, he, I he God saved he just got technically he just got lucky because he was the only one that landed near an American ship. I you know I appreciate his service and that was a very valorous thing to do, but you know kind of just got lucky and then. Um, I'm sorry. Fifty-eight. I'm sorry. Flown missions. Fifty-eight combat missions. And then he kind of has all these different positions that he goes through. That like, you know, he kind of he runs for senate, loses. But then people are like, well, here's a rich guy from Texas who is a Republican. Sure, let's just like nominate him for a whole bunch of stuff. Doesn't really do a whole lot, but is just kind of there. And then all of a sudden, like, just kind of matures his way up into the upper echelons of american politics and you know i think that is like leadership of the cia is is kind of emblematic of that he was totally unqualified for that position is just kind of there the cia has you know like some success but as usual not much and And he took over the cia right after it had been effectively been allegedly if not effectively emasculated by the church the church i want to say church amendment but i don't know what it would be an amendment to the church French, commission French. and the recommendations for a less forward-leaning intelligence policy he didn't fail no. i think i here's, uh, here's the I thing he george hw bush's career is marked by an absence of failure right he True. didn't really mess anything up and because it, it, like he's the living embodiment of the peter principle like he just didn't mess anything up so he keeps being promoted. Well, and- considering the state of the Republican Party at that time, that is in itself a pretty commendable accomplishment. I mean, to not perhaps. fuck up during the, the Watergate. He does oh, fail, right? He fails twice. He runs for Senate twice, right. and he's not elected either time. Like, and the first time, sure, he gets elected to the U.S. House, but the second time he's out right he doesn't choose he chooses not to run for anything but dude needs a job 
And so <laughs> Nixon offers him like, oh, you can like be a senior advisor on my staff. And Bush is like, no, I want, I want a title, right? I want something bigger and convinces Nixon to appoint him as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. As I recall, he was also campaigning to be Nixon's running mate in 68. He wanted to be the vice president as far back as then. And right, like, and, and that's kind of H.W. Bush, right? He seeks out the vice presidency. Um, that's that's his dream job. Well, yeah, not irrational. Well, yeah. if he thought the, he wanted to be president, and you know, there's plenty of evidence that he did want to be president for a good portion of his life. He not irrationally, although there, I will say there's you know rather slender evidence. He thought that being the vice president was going to be a stepping stone to the presidency. Ultimately, okay. he was right. Okay. But he did run the against first Reagan time since what, president. like 1836? Like the first well, time an incumbent I mean, true, vice president? Well, we'll get to that. We'll no, get no, to no, the no. 88 election. Who was elected, very... not yeah, not... elected. Yes. Uh, Calvin Coolidge. That's right. And look how well it worked for him. And so prior to his Johnson. prior to his presidency, but anyway. I guess accepting his distinguished career in the military was there anything in his prior political career in which he distinguished himself in any particular way for excellence in any degree of politics diplomacy or thought i would not i would nominate him for as you know domestically i would nominate him for sheer slipperiness because he had as he would later a tendency to jump on whatever position he thought would most was most likely to help him get elected like when he ran for president the first time excuse me ran for senate the first time in 1960 maybe it was 64 he sided with the birchers i mean if he was anything he was certainly not a bircher but you know he figured that the farther to the right he ran the more likely he was going to win in texas and And of course Part of me wonders if kind of taking everything that like James has said and everything that Paul has just said and hearkening back to his early life at both. So he attended Yale in like a two and a half year accelerated program. Who does that? It's like he like wasted all of his ambition, like finishing college in two and a half years. (laughs) Um, And Um, then, uh, but the guy's already married and has a kid and. Um, and he attended uh, Phillips Academy, which we've talked about presidents who attended Phillips before, right? A very, like, well-known prep school in New England. And in all of those places, he was, like, elected president of everything or, like, captain of the, right, captain of the baseball team, mm-hmm. captain of this, president of that. And part of me is beginning to, like, see this, I think, broader, this this better picture of George Bush, I don't want to say as a chameleon, but as a people pleaser. It works very well in politics, right? Well, and I think he's someone who feels entitled to leadership and therefore entitled to do what it takes to attain leadership. And I think those two things actually go together, even though they seem like separate things. The idea that, okay, I feel like I deserve this, therefore... I'm allowed to do whatever it takes to get to that position. I don't even know if it's whatever it takes, but I 
I think it's a question of, right, I will assume whatever character is being asked of me. It well, me, whoever it takes to become president. Well, let's 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 refresh our memories, of course, because I think Which the first was never time... a problem again. Right. I would like to actually Carbon spend heat. a little bit of time about Bush's role during the Reagan administration. That's a good idea. Yes. There, yeah. 1980, he's elected vice president. How involved? It's a question. One, it's. There's many questions about how he involved he was in Reagan skullduggery from the quote October surprise close quote, and we can debate the veracity of that. Although it's been you know about seventy percent confirmed, I would say, to his involvement in Iran Contra, about which he denied all knowledge, even though he was several, CIA head at some yeah, point. Despite several Reagan staffers saying no, he was in on it all the, t- the whole time. Yeah, I mean, to me, again, like, he just, I don't know. Like, I, I think he's I think he's in on the stuff, and I think he's just lying. He was at all the meetings. Short and succinct. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> I, th- I, think I, I think he knew about everything, and then I think when it came time to pay the piper, he just said, oh, I didn't hear anything about that. And, and then, of course, I, so and he did a Reagan. His, I have no memory of, the, of that. And at the end of the term, he pardons everybody, including Casper Weinberger. And who does he hire to help him do that? William Barr. Yeah, he was part of he was part of the scrubbing of that whole business. So once again, we have a, we have a lot of seeds that well, come up. <laughs> and it's not even like it's not even like we think that he knew everything about Iran Contra. He even says in his in his own like journal, I am one of the few people that fully know the details. And there is a lot of misinformation out there. He says it to himself, right? But like, guess what? All of that's now historical record. Well, I, and okay, so, so like, besides that, this is a, this is a summary of, of Bush's vice presidency. As vice <laughs> president, Bush generally maintained a low profile, recognizing the constitutional limits of the office. He avoided decision-making or criticizing Reagan in any way. This approach helped him earn Reagan's trust. His understanding of the vice presidency was heavily influenced by Vice President Walter Mondale, who enjoyed a strong relationship with President Carter, in part because of his ability to avoid confrontation with senior staff, basically by never giving an opinion or never making a decision or never saying anything. The Bushes attended a large large number of public and ceremonial events in their positions, including many state funerals, which became a common joke for comedians. So it sounds like other than probably being in staff meetings where illegal activities were discussed, Bush's vice presidency was basically going to funerals. Does that comport? Those of us who were alive in the 80s, do you have any impression, any memory at all of George W. H. W. Bush's vice presidency? Aside from Barbara and Nancy not getting along. And realizing he wanted to run in 1988, I think. I think when we talk about why he wanted to be vice president from the jump, it was all everybody knew. Well, he's going to run in '88. What was the idea? Also, he'll keep the Reagan party going. Yeah, yeah. the third Reagan term, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It worked for Martin Van Buren. Of yeah. course. Just to, me, one of the, to, to me, there's like two big indictments against Bush. Indictment one, 
Guy made Dan Quayle as vice president. Oh, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, maybe he was just, tr- I don't know. I'm Dan Quayle has nice. no, I don't know how that guy got elected dog catcher. That guy has like the least amount of charisma, the least amount of, like, just, just he just, I have perhaps an irrational hatred of Dan Quayle. Maybe he was just doing the defense where if you pick a bad enough vice president, no one wants to get rid of you. A human body. Like, if we if we talk about okay, like human H.W. Bush yeah. feels like he's entitled to the presidency, but at least H.W. Bush like has some degree of like some qualities. Dan <laughs> Quayle has no qualities. Like honesty, no. Integrity, no. Intelligence, no. no. Uh, <laughs> He was no Jack Kennedy, that's for Charisma. sure. And what, did, no. and what did Marilyn Quayle say on her wedding nights? God, you are no Jack Kennedy. Kennedy. Honestly, um, James, like your Dan Quayle comment, I was like, I need to refresh my memory and just look at a picture of Dan Quayle so I can put a face to the name, and I am delighted that I did because it is everything that I wanted to see as far as well, the mean, person you were describing. I'm an entitled asshole. Well, and, here, no, 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 I think but the there was the you... thought that having Dan Quayle on the ticket would bring women voters. And I remember yes, Chelsea. Because he's sexy or because he's white? Yes, he was supposedly so hot. That? I'm just reporting it. I did not believe it. And, but... and, it all, and we <laughs> also have to say but we also have to say through all of that Dan Quayle may have been the reason Trump wasn't able to overthrow the 2020 election because Quayle was the guy Mike Pence went to for wisdom and got it and for more on that let's go over to Tommy (laughs) (laughs) hi everybody Tommy here DB Comedy's senior Hoosier correspondent you're probably thinking Oh great, another Tommy knocker about Indiana's lame politicians. Well, yeah, that's pretty much what I'm doing. Today I'll be taking cheap shots at a man who is no Jack Kennedy. A man who once said, verbosity leads to unclear, inarticulate things. Vice President Dan Quayle. But unlike my other rants, this is going to be fun, and maybe for once it won't be so depressing. So let's make like Dan Quayle himself and dive into the shallow end. James Danforth Quayle... Yeah, Dan is short for Danforth, was born in 1947 in my old hometown of Indianapolis. Like a lot of idiots in high places, his family was rich. They were also a close family because... We understand the importance of having the bondage between the parent and the child. He joined the National Guard from 1969 to 1975, making him ineligible for the Vietnam draft. You might draw the conclusion that he was dodging the draft, but Dan Quayle can't spell conclusion or Vietnam, or find it on a map. He got elected to Congress at 29 and Senate at 33. When George H.W. Bush picked Quayle as his running mate in 1988, Republicans found the 41-year-old controversial. Their question was, could a man with the intelligence of a nine-year-old effectively preside over the Senate? For that matter, could he name the three branches of government, recite the Pledge of Allegiance, and had he seen the schoolhouse rock on how a bill becomes a law? I think Bush related to him on a personal level. Bush said the American family should be more like the Waltons than the Simpsons, and Quayle went on to blame the Rodney King riots on Murphy Brown. They're like the Ebert and Roper of hating women and black people. But we shouldn't forget, 
Quayle was also a cunning strategist. Well, Bobby Knight told me this. He says, there is nothing that a good defense cannot be a better offense. In other words, a good offense wins. By 1992, a lot of Republicans saw Quayle as a liability. But Quayle stayed on the Bush ticket and went on to checks notes, publicly misspell the word potato in a child's spelling bee. The funniest part of the story to me is that Quayle was correcting a 12-year-old New Jersey student who had spelled the word correctly. That's right, this man has a weaker grasp on the English language than a child from New Jersey. H.W. lost re-election, though I don't hold Quayle responsible for that. Bush could do boring all by himself. But as Quayle himself said, We don't want to go back to tomorrow, we want to move forward. Quayle ran for president in 2000, but dropped out early. Ultimately, the presidency would go to George W. Bush, an intellectual titan of the Republican Party whom we should never misunderestimate, or excuse me, underestimate. Normally, that would be a wrap on Dan Quayle, but history is stupid, and America found itself in need of a man stupid enough for the times. Some of you may recall another Hoosier who was recently vice president, Oedipus Pence. You may also recall that in 2020, the sad ex-president put pressure on Pence to overturn the results of a fair and free election. What you might not know is that Pence reached out to a former mentor from Indiana politics. That's right, Dan Quayle. I believe that I've made good judgments in the past, and I think I've made good judgments in the future. This story comes from a book called Peril by Bob Woodward and Bob Costa. I'll quote directly. Over and over, Pence asked if there was anything he could do. Mike, you have no flexibility on this. None. Zero. Forget it. Put it away, Quayle told him. Pence pressed again. You don't know the position I'm in. I do know the position you're in. I also know what the law is. You listen to the parliamentarian. That's all you do. You have no power. Yeah, Dan Quayle said that. He used the word parliamentarian in everything. Democracy was saved by the guy who said, And the future will be better tomorrow. And thanks to him, it actually is. I've shit on Indiana more than a Crawfordsville cow. But I gotta hand it to Mr. Quayle. We've put together some of his greatest clips at the end of the episode to let the man speak for himself. But before I go, from one Hoosier to another, thanks, Dan. And admittedly, like, because we start to get to 88, he had a pretty easy... Like, he, he had two people running against him, Bob Dole and Pat Robertson. Ah, yes. So, so he had a fortunate in your enemies. Yeah, he got a little scared because Dole won Iowa, but then he, he, but then he rolled to the nomination. Now, I do remember that when the general election came along, he was considered, he was behind in the polls. He was certainly behind in the polls, you know, at the Republican convention. But if you remember his speech, he he said, the Democrats will tell me to raise taxes. I will say no. And they will ask me again. And I will say, read my lips. No new taxes the even th words that totally bombed his future even then he knew it was, he, he would never be able to hold that uh keep that promise but it sets the table for what i think at the time people felt like was the lowest dirtiest presidential campaign led by as we said lee atwater 
and the Willie Horton ad, not uh, helped, great, not helped of, greatly by Michael Dukakis in that goofy helmet. Point, even point though of Dukakis, fact, his name was never Willie, it was William. And well, Atwater just called him Willie to make him sound quote unquote blacker. What were the other details of that, of the crime he committed while supposedly on furlough that actually kind of undermine the uh, scenario that Atwater painted? Well, I don't remember, but he I went I, to another state. Um, was it was a somehow they got killed. There was a part of a robbery that got botched, and he killed somebody. But they left. I think it was Massachusetts. He mm -hmm. left the state, and he and, definitely, obviously, wasn't the only one that actually, you know, had this issue with the, with the furlough and and that oh, furlough oh. program was created by a Republican governor before Dukakis. And oh, first pioneered by Ronald Reagan. You California. and your facts, Sandy. Come on. I was going to say, I didn't think he, I thought he raped a woman in Oh, yeah, that was Maryland. it, too. Which, yeah, led to, which led to the 1988 question that was asked yeah. of Michael Dukakis. What if, what if somebody raped your wife? Wouldn't you essentially want to the give them penalty. death penalty? And he... The the answer basically played into the Atwater frame, yeah. for, to to make you know, um, and then, and of course Michael Dukakis. Don't forget that was that was supposed to be Gary Hart, except Gary Hart had that little monkey business thing that happened, and then it was supposed to be. I think it was supposed to be. I don't know if that was supposed to be Mario Cuomo or if that was the. DNC speech that Cuomo gave that everybody kind of said, oh, why don't you run Mario? And of course he didn't. I feel like Cuomo's speech was in 1984, but... Oh, was it earlier? Well, then well, but then that was where the whole courting of Will Mario Cuomo run started, and he... It lasted until 92. Now, 19, 1988, I do believe it was Bill Clinton who gave the keynote address, and oh, yeah. from the impression, you know, from the impression that I've gotten of the reviews, bored the living crap out of everyone in the crowd. All of which led to H.W. Bush winning, and I think it's fair. And this is probably a good time to maybe also mention that, like '84, like '80 before that, '88, we are starting to get not just Republicans kicking Democrats' ass, but record low turnout for presidential elections. I mean, I think everyone knew that this that, that this was a foregone conclusion, right? Like, no one really thought Dukakis was not going to, you know, no one thought he was going to win. So he didn't. And very few people decided to cast a vote because nobody cared. Um, was it really apath voter apathy? Or was there, even back then, a stealth Republican campaign to, suppre to suppress the vote? I mean, I think there's been a stealth Republican campaign to suppress the vote at, since the 70s, since like <laughs> the Southern strategy. But um, I mean, I sure. I, I honestly think that this was mostly voter apathy. I think that politics have become very ossified by the end of the Reagan administration, where kind of it was like, OK, well, Republicans are going to win the presidency and the Democrats are probably going to hold the House. And eh, who cares what happens in the Senate? We're going to get divided government. Things will get hashed out in congress and there'll be some laws and stuff and that's just the way it's going to go and and it was kind of you know where there wasn't the same degree of hyper partisanship amongst the masses i feel like and and so it, it just kind of it, it it was what it was 
I mean, didn't economic equality get worse in the 1980s? Well, it's complicated. Um, the <laughs> 1980s is the time when we really see this trend where productivity growth continues, but average wages stagnate. I would I would call the 1980s in terms of the what it looks like on the ground is a highly diversified uh, picture by region. Cities, urban areas are struggling in the 1980s, but I also think that's that wasn't a new story. Urban areas have been struggling for 20 years. So it was kind of just like the way things were. The people who were going to get out of cities or could get out of cities got out. And the people that were left were left to pick up the pieces. And the people who cared, cared. The people who didn't care, didn't care. I It, it was not a great time in the upper Midwest because this was a time of rapid deindustrialization. But to some extent... There were enough jobs being created, even if those jobs weren't necessarily of equivalent quality or permanency, mm -hmm. that it hadn't totally been felt yet the way that it would be be felt, you know, down the road. But in the in the Sun Belt, in the South, things are still going pretty good. We're still like we've got the energy boom going on. We've still got the, you know, kind of technology boom. And so those things are, are, you know, continuing relatively strong growth in those regions. But kind of on the horizon, if you're an economist in the 1980s, what you should be thinking is if productivity is going up so much, why aren't average wages going up? Why has this suddenly diverged? And the conclusion to that will be this massive increase in the amount of wealth held by the wealthiest. The 1980s is really when we see that trend begin Yep. And and kind of the super elite start to really kind of gain control of the country. But it, it wasn't evident enough, I don't think, in the 1980s that people were were talking about it in the same way that they're talking about it in, in 2008. I mean, it, it uh, to, to go with James's uh, point a little bit, uh, the 1988 election had the lowest voter turnouts bar one since we started measuring voter turnout. Mm hmm. Let's kick it up a little with the question that's probably going to offend everybody. George H.W. Bush was the most successful foreign policy president in U.S. history. That's very provocative, considering you have Nixon. I mean, FDR. Uh, Roosevelt, right? Yeah. Truman. You have Truman. Truman. How are you measuring successful? Truman. Uh, and, and I'm going to be the an early advocate for Biden. Yeah, like I, I actually am like, I don't even know where to start. Like, I mean, hell, Jimmy Cart. <laughs> For I real, think, though. I think. Okay. okay. End of the Cold War. Okay, hold on, James has a James. James. Yeah. Okay. James has a legitimate. I answer. would. My grading for Bush would put him favorably um, among not commonly recognized as great presidents. Um, uh, for, right. So, like, for you know, foreign at, policy or just like overall. Like uh, at for foreign policy, domestic uh, policy, totally different story. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll get there. But foreign oh, yeah. policy, at least in, if we're just measuring it in terms of outcomes, um, or at least outcomes at the time, pretty good, right? And and that's that's where it gets tricky. I think when he leaves office, the outcomes that like what he's managed, the end of the Cold War and the Gulf War, look pretty darn good. I think that ultimately both those things ended up having kind of messy epilogues 
in the 21st century, uh, one of which we're dealing with right now, one of which we just got done dealing with, that perhaps muddy the waters a little bit. Uh, not necessarily to say that that's Bush's fault, but if we're just going to say like, okay, what were the outcomes? You got to like follow the the whole thing till the end of the story. You know, yeah. end of the Cold War was complicated, and basically, basically Bush's policy was just shut up and let things happen and try to kind of push the brakes on you know everyone as much as possible do you things think any do you think other us presidents would have done that james some would have some would not have i i think that it, it was very much in bush's style right bush was was someone who valued prudence and kind of the way of doing things and i think someone who maybe had more of an aggressive streak or was maybe you know more inclined to go for the jugular might not have had that inclination you know it, it it's i think it's tough to see your you know longtime historic rival unraveling at the seams and not wanting to say yes all of that but and he very deliberately avoided that right mm-hmm. uh, bush you know i think to his credit tried to support Gorbachev's attempts to kind of unwind or at least, you know, not totally unwind things. Or then when it became clear that things were going to become unwound to unwind them slowly, um, Bush was instrumental in kind of laying the groundwork for, you know, some of the, the, the end, the, the negotiations that the successor states kind of go through where they kind of figure out like, okay, what is this going to be? What is the relationship still going to be between Russia and the successor states? And let, but, let us not forget that. Paul, can you support your provocative question? Yes. What was your, what was your gauge for uh, trying, that? I, well, criterion one, the successful management of the transition from the Cold War to whatever the hell you would call the post-Cold War world. Criteria two, successfully removing a foreign dictator from power. No, I'm not talking about Hussein. I'm talking about Manuel Noriega. Hmm. But Noriega was our guy and we were propping him up and then we decided we just didn't need him anymore. We just sort We've of done millions of times, usually with yeah. horrible consequences. Mm. Minimum bloodshed. I don't recall a lot of blowback on that. They also blasted Guns N' Roses 24-7 at him and that seemed to have an effect. I mean, we were propping so, up so Noriega until we, so we didn't need him Ro- anymore. I was going to say, should we give credit to Axl Rose, too? Like, He'd be happy to take it. Yeah. <laughs> Who's knock, knock, knocking on Axl's door? Uh, pardon me. I seem to have been given the wrong address. I'm looking for a conference promoting Chinese democracy? Here I am. I'm Axl Rose from Guns N' Roses, and Chinese democracy is the title of my next album. Our next album. Uh, our next album? Welcome to Guns N' Roses, George H.W. Bush. We got fun and games. You're my new lead guitarist. Out with Slash, in with Poppy. Here, have a Les Paul. Uh, oh my, these newfangled devices. Mr. Rose, I can't even play chopsticks on the piano, let alone lead guitar. It's so easy. All you need is just a little patience. 
but Mr. Rose, uh, why do you think a former president of the United States would join a heavy metal rock and roll band? You ain't got nothing better to do, man. Besides, it'll get more press than one of my on-stage breakdowns. I don't think I'm your ideal collaborator. We worked together before, man. Your army blasted GNR at the Vatican Embassy in Panama. That Noriega was a real motherfucker, but we kicked him on down the line. Oh, well, thank you for your assistance. Um, you think after bringing an international drug dealer to justice and winning a war, I'd have been a shoe-in for re-election. That's why we gotta team up, man, to bring back the late 80s, when everything was as fresh as a bright blue sky. Uh, true, I remember a few points of light back then. I won the presidency in an electoral college landslide. And my band released the biggest selling debut album of all time. Man, I was flying like an aeroplane. I've flown airplanes, Mr. Rose. They aren't quite as exciting as overseeing the end of the Cold War. I don't understand quite how it all went sideways. I'll tell you why, man. They were out to get us. My, some people have a chip on their shoulder. And some would say it was me. But think about it, man. The blacks and the feminists and the gays all conspired to label me a racist and a sexist and a homophobe. I took a heck of a lot of guff about the Thomas nomination. And I suppose I made some imprudent comments about AIDS. That's because the punks in the press want to start shit by printing lies instead of what you said. And we both got hosed by Hoosiers, man. True. Uh, between the misstatements and malaprisms and Murphy Brown, Dan Quayle was an unwelcome distraction. And Izzy quit the band and went to rehab so people could say, now you're clean and so discreet. Man, what a prick. And let's not forget, we both had to deal with a no-talent upstart and his insanely ambitious blonde wife. Well, can't say I agree with that assessment of Bill and Hillary Clinton, but I'm not sure I disagree with it either. And I got fucked by Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love. By 1992, we were fading like candles in the cold November rain. 37% of the vote. It was an outrage. I smell a sense of retribution in the air. So come on, join the band, man. We'll turn around and go back to the start. Where do we go now, sweet bush of mine? Uh, Mr. Rose, you've made an awfully compelling case. We have more in common than I ever imagined. With one exception. You never rocked, man. No, I never spent three years making my fans wait and then ripping them off with two double albums worth of bloated, overproduced 70s retreads. Would it have killed you to write at least one decent song? Don't cry, sucked ass. Big time. And now you want me to join Guns N' Roses. Read my lips. You're fucking crazy. You think you're so cool? Well, I'm gonna write one mean fucking song about you. Now go right ahead. No one will listen to it. And one more thing. Next time you diss my girl Courtney, remember, she wanted to hook up with you, but she decided on Kurt instead. Uh, yes? An emotionally fragile heroin addict was preferable to an asshole like you. See me hit you, you fall down. Why am I here? I can't quite remember. And by the way, Noriega didn't come out of the compound until the troops started playing Rick Astley.
and by the way, again, just to kind of just again refreshing memories because we did. There's definitely a first half of the Bush H.W. presidency and the second half of the H.W. presidency because just kind of glancing over what was passed. One one act that was passed under H.W. Bush, and I can't imagine a Republican now ever passing it, which was huge at the at the time was the Americans with Disabilities Act. Which and I think there was a personal connection in the Bush family that that was something he really wanted, and I do remember he really pushed to get that passed. There was also an extension of the Clean Air Act that was passed yeah. by. So he's he's a Republican. You know, it's funny we've talked episodes about the impact of Roosevelt and the New Deal, and we do have sort of the conservatism of Reagan. But if you look at those two. It does seem like H.W. is still sort of has a little bit of that DNA of sort of having to deal with some of the social plans. And he's certainly the last. <laughs> so is Bush just kind of Nixon light and that he's got a somewhat more expansive view of government um, than other conservatives. He's got some serious foreign policy chops and then also but his administration is really kind of doing all kinds of crazy stuff behind the scenes. Also, just, he's rich and entitled and less of a psychopath, like more entitled. That's true. That's true. That Bush did not have the same degree of just rampant paranoia that that Nixon did. And so, OK, so let me kind of spin this a different way, too. I think that in 1988, um, there wasn't a lot that was like really like angering people um, that there's relatively low, like like the people who hated Reagan hated Reagan, but probably couldn't hate Bush quite as much because he hadn't done anything yet. And at the same time, the economy was doing well. Uh, this was kind of like the height of the Reagan expansion. Well, we we escaped the 87 crash without a lot of damage. Right. And so things were kind of on the up in that regard. The uncertainty that 1989 through 1991 would cause was kind of on the horizon. People, I think, were at least somewhat aware, you know, Chernobyl had happened at this point. There were like perestroika and glasnost were in full swing in the Soviet Union. So people were kind of aware that like the Soviet Union was kind of lurching around a little bit. But but I don't think anybody in 88 thought, oh, the Berlin Wall is going to fall within two not years. The Soviet Union within not four. That not was at just all. Not... In fact, I, I think the initial reaction was shock mm -hmm. more than euphoria because it was yeah. one of those things of this is something we thought we would all have to live with all of our lives because most of us had. And the fact that it ended and it just ended so suddenly and it ended with more or less a whimper. I mean, we'll forget about the Ceausescu's for a second. Um, and it was before, you know, Yugoslavia blew the hell up and all of that. But in those years, it was sort of that rest. And then, oh, my God, that happened. But there wasn't the euphoria. The euphoria happened when we Desert Storm won. Right. This is a Dumont Network special report. We take you now to Beers Malta. More old yard, huh? Well, if that's the fishy soup, then sure. Oh, hello there. I'm special correspondent Andy Candias here in the small port town of Busy Boogie. Busy Booga. 
Oh, if that's the beanie dip stuff, then sure. Uh, anyway, while Premier Gorbachev and President Bush are having a summit, their lovely wives are here with me having a Malta meal. And it's good stuff, Maynard. Welcome, Raisa Maximovna Gorbachev. Oh, that is Maltese for Gombrievisher. I'm multilingual. And welcome, Barbara Pierce Bush. I'm fine with Bush. I can't say the same. No offense, Mrs. Bush. I just figured if Mrs. Gorbachev gets three names, you should too. Hey, I'm not some diva who needs to hog the spotlight. I'm a New England matriarch who prides herself on her modesty. And your modesty suits you very much, Mrs. Bush. Speaking of suits, you dress pretty well for a communist. I am going to assume that is compliment. Now, ladies, before you start pelting each other with these uh, yummy pea dumpling things. The pastizzi? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, as we're all learning here in Bitchy Bougie. Better say booga. Well, glad I'm not sharing a bathroom with you, Mrs. Bush. Uh, maybe Mr. Bush and Mr. Gorbachev can make amends one month after the Berlin Wall fell. But what about the great barrier that remains between the First Ladies of the U.S. and the USSR? Oh, Mr. Candias, I wish you would not repeat the story that Mrs. Nancy Reagan and I did not like each other. In fact, we were very good friends. Ah, I'd hate to meet your enemies. Yes, you would, Mrs. Bush. Well, let's see if we can't establish detente before they bring out the malted milk balls for dessert. Oh, I believe they serve incorrect with the dates. Oh, good to know if I meet any cute fishermen. But as we dig into this tasty stew that might be made with Maltese falcon... It's Fennec. Oh, it's very Fennec. Anyway, is there tension between you two because you're allegedly the real power behind your husbands? Oh, that is silly, Mr. Candias. Mikhail Sergeyevich is a man who thinks for himself. He is not puppet on my strings. And you really think I have my hand up George's tush? I'm not here to judge. Still, I can't think of two more different women to be here munching on orange spaghetti. Pasterizzi. Oh, it's very much so. Uh, Mrs. Bush, an heiress. Mrs. Gorbachev, a peasant. How do you find common ground? Easy. We both hate Nancy Reagan. <laughs> that is dirty propaganda, Mrs. Bush. Oh, drop the act, Razor. We're allies now. I couldn't stand that broad either. Really? I thought you buried the hatchet. Believe me, I wanted to. Oh, Mrs. Bush, that is not nice. Neither is Nancy. When Millie and I moved into the White House, I told the staff, twice the bitches, half the hassle. Go on, Mrs. Bush, you are terrible. You learn not to hold back when you're following your husband all over the third world. China one year, Texas the next. I feel your pain. I accompany Mikhail Sergeyevich to Czechoslovakia after failed Prague Spring. Very unpleasant. But it's all worth it for moments like this, when you're enjoying good wine and rabbit stew with a new friend. Skol! Nostradovia. Wait, that's rabbit stew? Yes, it's very tasty meat. What the hell did you think Fennec meant? I, I didn't think it meant Bugs Bunny. Or my third grade pet. This is Pinkie Paws. Yeah. Well, let's let's take a break for a commercial while I go puke my guts out. Strange man, isn't he? Well, you know what they say about confirmed bachelors. 
Oh, is he Catholic? <laughs> Must be difficult for homosexual. The Bush administration, 1988 to 1992, starts with a bang, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the foreign policy success with Panama, another foreign policy success with a peaceful transition of power in Nicaragua, although we can credit that to Jimmy Carter, and the, you know, the big production number that was the first Gulf War. It's early 1991. And George H.W. Bush is on a roll. I mean, the economy is not doing so great, but it's a relatively shallow recession. James, I can see you're probably ready to shoot that one down, but that's cool. <laughs> but then George H.W. Bush dooms his chance at re-election by nominating Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. Take it, guys. I think that was the end. Well, because that um, was kind of I my would question. Also throw in it's the economy, the stupid. The L.A. riots. Oh, uh, good one. Very good one. Yeah. And you and he broke his note. He also broke his read my lips promise. Yep. On the right, that's where you begin to see the rift on the right. Well, I mean, when you're basically running the economy on a credit card, eventually you have to come up with some way of paying for it. You know well, that. And, I know that. And Bush knew that. And Bush yeah. knew that. But and Bush decided he had to be the adult right. in the room. Exactly. But the, but well, and the, I think I think also the fact of you know Clinton coming in with the now modern neoliberal Democratic Party offering an alternative to uh, Bush had soured himself against all the conservatives in the Republican Party. And so someone, someone like uh, Clinton coming in, who's basically, I'm a Democrat, but not too much of a Democrat, you know? I, I, we'll, we'll that, I feel one. your pain kind of helps. We'll get to that. I'm interested in... Yeah, we'll get to that when we get to Clinton, because that's a whole... And I, I will well, we have to talk about why that. Bush lost the... They didn't make it a second term. I mean, one of the things that set up Bush losing in 92 was all of this stuff that erupted into the mainstream. You had the SNL, you had the SNL scandal, you had Saddam Hussein still in Iraq. Why is he still in Iraq when he invaded Kuwait? We don't understand. You had the Rodney King riots. You had the Clarence Thomas hearings, which was an absolute wedge. And then you you had Quayle being a doofus. The potato incident with Murphy Brown was right around that same time. The entire period of 1988 to 1992 was just a series of Dan Quayle punchlines. Magazines would run features called The Year in Dan Quayle. And it was just a series of one-liners. Sandy, do you think that the economy was a more important factor than all these cultural and racial issues? It was in the campaign. That was Clinton's tagline. It's true. the economy, stupid. I believe 70 in uh, exit polls showed about 70 percent of people who voted in the election said that the economy was bad and getting worse, mm -hmm. even though it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And then Bush coming across as out of touch that uh, moment where he went into a supermarket and he was just fascinated uh, by the uh, automated checkout. It's almost like, 
Well, that was kind of a new thing, wasn't it? I mean, they are pretty cool. Yeah, but but at the same time, right? It reminds me. I remember going to stores at about the exact same time and also being fascinated by the automated checkout. Now, and you were how old? But (laughs) but it also reminds me, like a good callback is uh, Doctor Oz when he was running for whatever in uh, Pennsylvania, going and picking up like a vegetable tray and being like. Pick up some crudités. People in Pennsylvania are like, that's a veggie tray, yo. (laughs) You're not one of us if you're saying crudite, even though. Politicians should just not go to grocery stores. Just like it doesn't do anything for you. What was the last time, on that note, what was the last time any of them did? Then you get John Kerry like windsurfing to show that he's hip and with it. And like sometimes maybe you should just not try to be appealing to the people. Except, well, and again, we'll get back to Bill Clinton, but Bill Clinton played sax on Arsenio Hall and it worked and answered boxes or briefs. And he well, was that's able to pull he it actually, off. That's because that's he's actually good at it. Well, but it's funny. I mean, as we and get he's to, Bill Clinton. I mean, Bill Clinton is an outlier and we'll get ways. to that. <laughs> yes. But even I remember the 92 election, I had a lot of friends going, well, Bush would have run another Willie Horton ad if it weren't for the Rodney King riots. And for the fact that by then I... By then, Lee Atwater, if he hadn't died of brain cancer, it was at least going after him. And I believe he died in '91. Yes. Let yeah. And so, though. and and by then, Carl Rove transferred his affections to W. Again, we'll get to that. But there was this sense that Bush wasn't going to be able to play the same notes, and that was kind of what he wanted to do. Except. Um, now the '92 campaign, he had some he had some opposition in the form of Patrick Buchanan, and while Buchanan Nazi. didn't really win a lot, they felt the need. I guess the Bush people felt the need to give him a speech, and boy, did he provide a speech! The there is a culture war in America. He actually started by referring to the Democratic convention the month before as the biggest d- display of cross-dressers ever collected. That was his opening line, and it got a laugh. And I don't. And it was considered an insult. That's the worst part. Right. And so if you want to consider where did the division start to happen and the polarization start to happen, I think you can make a persuasive argument right there. Okay, Sylvia, Sandy, I mean, do you who- think that the year of the women kicked Bush out of office. It raised the ire of of women and it kind of briefly rekindled some feminism in the year of the woman which elected all of what eight nine women in the Senate. I thought there were more that oh in the Senate but in Congress there were more. Congress there were a few more but yeah I think all of eight or nine women in the Senate so like didn't have a massive push but that was the start of of something I'd say of the start of the the polarization as far as the political parties, yes, has been going on for a, a long time. But the current one, I would say it started with Newt Gingrich. Gingrich is after Buchanan. He was in what? He was in Congress at the time. But he the contract become, with America isn't until yeah, '94. Right. He didn't become speaker till '94, but he was making headways. He started um, using C-SPAN. That yeah. was a new thing that happened at that time. He started That's using 
But Pep Buchanan didn't write that playbook, right? Like he was following a playbook that was written by local conservative politicians. And like, that was not just him being like, React like up, Buchanan right? doesn't give he, that he, speech he, if he doesn't think that there's an audience for it. And he yeah. got a yeah. prime time 9 p.m. I see what you're saying. I mean, George Wallace was tired doing like this, that before. Like, I'm tired of this like big white man national politics, like national stage. One of the reasons why the current political conservative political ascendancy took the Democrats, you know, I don't want to say by surprise, but has swept through so rapidly and so terribly over the past few decades. And it's because we were not paying attention to the local races and the local groundwork that was happening Mm -hmm. in the 50s, 60s, 70s, right? When Democrats were sitting on their heels and resting on their laurels. And it happened again, right? In the 90s. And so, it happens one more time in 2010. Right? I mean, Obama. luckily we've learned and Carl Rove and-, and Carl Rove's right in the middle of that, by the way. Right. So I'm so I one of the things that I I as a historian get really like rumped about <laughs> is pointing to a national occurrence and being like, this is when it happened. Like Okay. Sure, that's when it like might Reagan have was responsible for the end of the Cold War. Right. right. <laughs> like it might have been elevated to a national stage, but the groundwork and the playbook was written long before by local people. Right. Oftentimes don't get recognized by big history. I right. just want to say it's not um, only the rise of C-SPAN said, but this is the rise of talk radio. Mm-hmm. Oh, not yeah. only Pat Buchanan, but uh, the other Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh. Was happening. Yeah. And so, for the po- for the point of pointless arguments, I would, I don't know if this was the beginning. It was the golden age, most certainly. But like Chelsea was saying, I mean, the the era of local fascist candidates being elected to school boards and municipal boards parallels the era of local right wing talk radio, which would eventually metastasize into the national monster, which we would. Well, again, let me point out, what does Pat Buchanan do after that campaign? He gets the co-hosts crossfire on CNN. The Amalgamated Cable News Empire, ACNE, presents Pat Buchanan's Culture War Today. Featuring political pundit and former Republican Party presidential candidate, Pat Buchanan. Good evening, real Americans. This is Pat Buchanan, and on this inaugural episode of Pat Buchanan's Culture War Today, on the ACNE Network, we will bring you the news you need to know to keep you and your family's real Americanism protected from the insidious influences that mark America in 1992. We will report on the communism inherent in Larry King's interviews, why you should never allow your white daughter to watch Prince music videos, and new evidence of the hell spawn that is Hillary Rodham Clinton. We will begin after this special message from our sponsor, Bucyrus Industries of Bucyrus, Ohio. I address the lady or the man of the house. Young man, can't you see we're trying to do a television show here? In that case, may I address the lady or the man who is hosting the show? There is only this red-blooded American male on this set. 
any fine specimen of American manhood you are, and how fortunate this day is for you. My name is Harper Edgefield III, and like the men in our family before me, I now have the privilege to represent Bucyrus Industries of Bucyrus, Ohio. I know Bucyrus Industries of Bucyrus, Ohio. Your salesmen have sold many goods and services to myself and my family over the years. And if I may make a further observation, your family is the better for our presence in your lives. Don't I know it. Since 1857, Bucyrus Industries of Bucyrus, Ohio makes pretty much everything and anything you need in your home. And whether it is by going door-to-door to homes that could not afford a door until we sold it to them, or innovation in the use of catalogs and mail sales, Bucyrus Industries of Bucyrus, Ohio has always been there. Try to make us go away. So, I presume you are going to make me buy something from you before I can continue this show? Indeed, that is the case. Like you, Mr. Buchanan, we are a supporter of your observation that American culture is a terrifying hellscape for people like you. How can you help me convey that terror to those who do not believe me? By providing a new set of Pat Buchanan-endorsed American products for real Americans, marketed exclusively by Bucyrus Industries of Bucyrus, Ohio. Why, what a wonderful idea! Any examples? To ensure that you never watch the kind of hidden messages you may find on other more well-heeled cable news services. Bucyrus Industries of Bucyrus, Ohio, is proud to be the main sponsor of the Amalgamated Cable News Empire and all its programming, which we can assure you will be 100% full of patriotic messages, free of anything involving free speech or thought. A fantastic product. What else can you sell to my fans? To better build your defenses when your children come home to try to dance like they grew up in Watts, Bucyrus Industries of Bucyrus, Ohio, is proud to offer you this 4VHS tape series, Square Dancing with Uncle Sam, which will bring hours of exhausting fun that will then allow you to try to block MTV off your cable. Who doesn't love being ordered to move around a dance floor? I certainly do. And for the threat that Democratic First Ladies present, well, you can read all about it in this book, Pat Buchanan's Witches of the White House by Pat Buchanan. That's right. From Eleanor Roosevelt to Rosalind Carter, be on the lookout for spouses who speak out. They bring communism and short skirts wherever they are heard. Remember that when you go to the polls and think of Bill Clinton's wife. Mr. Edgefield! Oh, look! Sammy the Bucyrus Industry Squirrel is here. Do you have a question, Sammy the Bucyrus Industry Squirrel? Mr. Edgefield, aren't these products just pandering to right-wing range, cynically turning conservatism into a commodity? Absolutely. Bucyrus Industries of Bucyrus, Ohio can commodify anything. It's the American way. Oh, I don't know. Squirrel! Squirrel! Was that your latest book, Pat Buchanan's Witches of the White House by Pat Buchanan, that you hit Sammy the Pusires Industry Spoke Squirrel with? It certainly was. And if you act now, you can get this Sammy-dented copy of my book by ordering any one of these fine Bucyrus products. Just call 1-800-BUCYRUS. Bucyrus Industries of Bucyrus, Ohio, headquartered in Bucyrus, Ohio. Manufacturing facilities in Guangdong, China. We are so glad to have Bucyrus Industries support for this show. And Sammy needs to watch this show to get those anti-American ideas out of her head. Anyway, let's talk about the communism in CNN. George Bush, by the end of 1992, does not have a single friend left. He's alienated the right wing of his own party. The you know Democrats always hated him. 
And he he's an incumbent president who scores a Taft-like percentage of the vote. Well, I'm sure he still has Barbara by his That's what I was just going to say. He always have Barbara. I mean, you know, that was... 92 is a weird election, right? Because it's kind of the closest thing to a three-way election that we yeah. had in modern <laughs> times. Um, and It'll be approved, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it like it was close-ish, I guess. Um, but you know, and I, I think you also have to say that Bill Clinton successfully breaks the mold for the Democrats, right? And I'm sure we'll talk about that in the next episode. Mm -hmm. um, but Bill Clinton is definitely not going to be confused with Walter Mondale or with Michael Dukakis, um, and, and so he definitely kind of you know was able to appeal to, it. and 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 he's Southern. Right. Which then kind of opens uh, kind of reopens the door for for some southern states to, to flip and, and vote for the Democrats for the first time in a while. And so that um, that constituency plus um, just kind of the weird electoral map with, um, you know, the the parole votes um, being in there. I, I know he didn't win any state, but it, it changed the math in some of the states like how many votes you need to win. Uh, ultimately allows Clinton to to carry the day and and then um you know Bush becomes the last one term president until Trump. Um but he's also the first president in a long time that has family working in politics as well. Which again, I mean, A, we all know how well families in, in politics seem to work, for, especially on the uh, on the conservative side. And again, we will certainly talk about the son they thought was supposed to be the heir apparent, Jeb, versus the son who turned out oh, to be the heir apparent. Man, can we talk about one of HW's biggest gaffes, calling his Jeb's children his those little brown, brown ones. ones? Oh yeah. <laughs> And could turn a phrase, no doubt. Oh, those little bros. But you guys ever feel sorry for Marvin Bush? Why? Like, no one ever talks about him. Like, I'm sure he prefers Marvin, the gummo of the Bush family. W and Jeb have two other brothers. And how many of you listening today knew that? I knew about Neil. And but a sister that died. Maureen? They had, they, had, yeah. they were six kids in that family. Yep. Robin died in 1949, I believe. 37, uh, yeah, but, but there is another daughter who's still alive and married to yeah. one of the Cokes. Mm -hmm. Of course she is. So is that uh, the final so is that our final word on HW? I would like everyone to know that two things. One, we will talk about NAFTA, I'm sure, under Clinton. But remember that Clinton just signed the piece of paper. He did not negotiate NAFTA. George H.W. Bush deserves credit for NAFTA. And I'm well, going to say credit because overall economists agree that NAFTA was good for the United States, unlike some other dummy who said that <laughs> NAFTA was bad and repealed it like a dummy. I'm talking about Trump, everyone. The second thing is Bush, and we alluded to this very early on, Bush actually has like a decent, I'm not saying great, environmental historians, don't come at me, 
He has a decent environmental record in that, yes, he expands the Clean Air Act, but he also creates a presidential <laughs> research commission that starts collecting climate change data. Even though they don't call it climate change, they call it global change. It starts to collect data about changing drastic changes in the climate. And that's the beginning of like, that's the historical data that we often look to when we're gathering data now. So cool. thank you, George W. Bush, for taking down numbers. H.W. Bush. H.W. George H.W. Herbert Walker Bush. <laughs> Should we just call him Poppy so that we're not confused? Poppy! There we go. Any other final words, Patrick, Sandra? All right. So will the Bill Clinton episode be a one-parter or two-parter? You're going to have to wait to find out. It says something, though. Will a president about with a with a five by six card, or does a presidency about nothing deserve two episodes? We're going to have to find out, and you're going to have to find out next. The American people are getting a little bit sick and tired. They want to know who Dan Quayle is. I have a very strong record on the environment in the United States Senate. I was meeting with some former gang members in Phoenix in Los Angeles and Albuquerque, New Mexico. And when I talked to those former gang members, here's what they told me. Cop killer. Cop killer. Cop killer. I got my 12-gauge sawed off. I got my headlights turned off. I'm about to bust some shots off. Sawed off. I got my headlights turned off. I'm about to bust some shots off. I'm about to bust some cops off. I'm going to view this as a great opportunity to just be Dan Quayle. I was known as the chief grave robber of my state. I'm about to bust, die, pig, die. I'm about to bust, die, pig, die. You know, it's hard to believe that it's been over a year since George Bush rode to victory on my coattails. I'm about to bust. I'm about to, about to, about to, about to. I'm about to bust. And you take the UNCF model that what a waste it is to lose one's mind or not to have a mind is being very wasteful. How true that is. And I stand by all the misstatements that I've made. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bocola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. 
Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.